officially we have rider 114. <laughs> hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 96 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's celebrating. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash success. So a review again to get us underway today, a greeting from Taiwan, five stars, by Alan Cycling from Taiwan. Hi, Damien. I'm a cycling journalist from Taichung, Taiwan, the capital city of high-end bicycle manufacturing. I love listening to your podcast while I'm on the indoor trainer or your so-called hurt box. Your podcast is informative and easy to understand for a foreigner. Love your podcast. And thank you very much, Alan, for taking the time out to write that. I have to trace you down. I want to get to Taiwan on one day. I really think there's super, super duper riding, great hills, and I'm a big fan of most Asian cultures. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, I would love a review on iTunes or Stitcher because five stars makes me sing. Thank you very much. Now, a couple of great articles this week, and they're both studies. The first one is anaerobic capacity of amateur mountain bikers during the first half of the competition season. It's all about investigating whether anaerobic power of mountain bikers changes during the first half of the competitive season. The assumption here is that sustained aerobic exercise not only affects the rate of force development, but also decreases peak power development as a season goes on. So eight trained cyclists were tested here. They were suggested to an ergo incremental exercise test and a wing gate test on two occasions before the season and in the middle of the season. But after the incremental exercise test, the excess post-exercise oxygen consumption was measured during five-minute recovery and blood lactate concentration was measured in the fourth minute after the Wingate test. So the maximum oxygen uptake increased from around 60 to 1.5 milliliters at the beginning of the season to 65 plus or minus 1.4 milliliters in the season. So neither of the mechanical variables of the Wingate test nor the excess post-exercise oxygen consumption values were significantly different in these two measurements. So nothing changed from the start of the season to the middle of the season. But where they did get a change was in the blood lactate concentration, it was significantly higher in the season than it was before the season. The people doing this study concluded that despite the increase of the cyclist's maximum oxygen uptake during the competition season, their anaerobic power did not change. And the blood lactate concentration measured at the fourth minute after the Wingate test does not properly reflect training-induced changes in energy metabolism. So in conclusion, during the first half of the mountain bikers competition season, applying a concurrent high and low intensity exercise training program does not change the absolute values of anaerobic power, although the maximum oxygen consumption increases. 
So I've got to say this study kind of just falls flat on its face and I don't really think that the findings are that exciting and maybe the study itself wasn't that exciting to begin with but there's nothing that I can really take out of this and apply to any of the training or athletes that I coach. Number two, effects of high-intensity training by Erin McCleave, PhD. Now, it's the study is actually called Effects of High-Intensity Interval Training in Concurrent Heat and Neurobaric Hypoxia on Physiological and Performance Adaptions. So just so you're up to speed, normobaric hypoxia is a simulated altitude effect where you're reducing the oxygen artificially. But the aim of this study was to examine the performance of physiological adaptions to a period of concurrent heat and hypoxia and the resulting decay of adaptions. So 18 trained cyclists were split into two groups and they did three weeks of interval training in a simulated environment. So the first group was the heat and hypoxia group. I'll say it's the H and H group. They were training in 32 degrees, which is 89.6 Fahrenheit, 50% humidity at approximately an oxygen saturation of 2,000 meters in altitude, where the control group was training at 20 degrees Celsius, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, 50% humidity, and approximately 50 meters altitude. They went through a whole bunch of testing in this. There was three lots of testing and within those three lots of testing they did a power profile test for their vo2 max hemoglobin test temperature test a temperate 20 kilometer time trial a heat tolerance test and then a 20 kilometer time trial in the group's specific environment so they did that testing and then they went away and did three weeks training in experimental conditionings and then they did post testing which was the same as what i just mentioned And then they went away again and did three weeks testing at temperate conditions. And then they did another round of that testing. So it sounds pretty crazy to be involved in this study. A lot going on with those testings. But the training itself that they were doing, they were training for 20-minute power outputs. And so they were doing four sessions a week initially with a total of 12 sessions in the first block. They actually dropped down and tapered in the second where they only had seven sessions. But the training was things like five times five minutes at 105% of FTP or three times 10 minutes at 95% of FTP or five times 30 seconds with four and a half minutes rest at the best average across the efforts. The performance results that this study produced, the 20-kilometer time trial performance, was the same across the two groups. So it didn't matter what group you were in, there was a training effect. And this was also the case in the environmental 20-kilometer time trial performance. The H&H group was slightly slower, but not significantly. In the temperate time trial, there were significantly lower heart rates in the H&H group, which really is the biggest finding out of all of this. But that is really it as far as big breakthroughs from this study. Not that you could even call that a big breakthrough, but there was no additional performance benefit than training with heat and hypoxia than without because there was no performance change throughout all of the time trials. There were slightly 
greater adaptions or physiological adaptions in the H&H group, but not the actual performance. So my thoughts on this, training under these conditions are all about putting the body under greater stress and pushing for greater adaptions, meaning that when you're competing without these environmental factors, you're still having to do the work. It's not the extra elements that are going to make the difference in this case. And it may be found later on that heart alone is causing the physiological adaptions, which would support the idea of training in the same environment that you race in, especially if you're racing in a hot environment and you're wanting to train in a hot environment as well. But otherwise, is this a valid question? And hopefully further studying would help answer this. But really, it comes down to me that a hot training camp on the Canary Islands isn't about the altitude and the heat. It's about doing the work. So definitely no surprises here. I have a bit of a bonus one this week because it is such an exceptional piece of, uh, it's not journalism, but camera work, I guess. It is Shimano releasing their camera and as part of this launch, they put cameras onto bikes in the Tour of California. And I'm sure you've seen this if you're an avid fan of pro cycling, but if you haven't, I highly recommend checking it out. I am calling it revolutionary because you get a really good look inside the peloton. You get it a look inside the last three kilometers of stage eight of the Tour of California, where the majority of the clip is from Cone to Court, his saddle cam, but then you flip around and in the last 150 meters, you see John Degenkolb's camera from the front and all of the footage is filmed with these, just with these cameras that you can buy. So good advertisement for the company, but when you have a look at it, it changes your opinion about exactly what's happening because because you may know what it's like to be in your bunch and you try and think about what's in a pro bunch. But just the way that the pros move through the bunch and really, it is really obvious to me when you look at this, you can tell the difference between a Euro pro and a US domestic pro. Not to bring anyone down, but these guys can get straight to the front and have no problems putting you in your place when they need to be on a wheel. It's also really interesting when all of a sudden Cav is in the frame and you see Hushoff disappearing because he has stated that he is afraid in the final sprints these days. It didn't seem super dangerous, but he backed off very quickly. But either way, I'm spoiling it for you. I highly recommend that you check out this video. All righty then. The nuts and bolts, six components to a successful training plan. Back to basics today, because once you start getting into the nitty gritty of designing a training plan, you start to get overwhelmed by all the elements that should be included. It gets pretty complicated at times, and there are many components that go into a successful training plan, and even more ways to put them together. So the makeup of your training plan comes down to you as an individual athlete, but there are parts that are universal to all athletes and should be included no matter who you are. So for me, when I look at training, I just see it as a process. And if something fails, then the process is broken, not you. So in this episode, I'm here to address six crucial components to a training program that you should use as a checklist to know if you're on the right track. And the big thing here really is to keep in mind that the weight that's placed on each of these components varies from athlete to athlete and from the time of the season. So while you may not be focused on all of these at the moment, at least 
make sure you know when you should increase or decrease each part. So these six components come from an article published by Tim Crowley on trainingpeaks.com and my goal here is to bring my experience and knowledge to each one and increase your understanding of how they fit into your program and how they overlap and complement each other. So the six elements themselves are endurance, movement economy, strength power, speed, mental fitness and recovery and regeneration. So I'm going to take a look to highlight the importance in a training plan and also how you can incorporate them into your process, outcome and performance goals. So endurance itself, the number one training factor and racing specific fitness element. Cycling is an endurance sport. Yes, we all know this, but ignore it at your peril. I don't want to get too serious on you, but don't kid yourself into thinking that you can just do hit training and ignore endurance because at a minimum, you should be training in zones two and three every single week of the year, except for when you are tapering. And I would highly recommend if you are short on time, maybe creep it up a little bit to high zone three, sweet spot, but really you don't want to neglect it when you are putting it into a training program. So the areas of endurance which must be addressed include muscular endurance, which is the ability to generate force, power or speed over the duration of an event is just as important as aerobic endurance, as this often determines how fast an athlete can cover the race distance. So it's not just about having the engine itself, it's about being able to do something with that engine and produce producing the force, power and speed that will actually get you moving. Aerobic threshold, your base level endurance work is predominantly aerobic, often thought of as base training, but like I said, you have to include a small part of this throughout the entire year. Your lactate or anaerobic threshold or FTP, and these are all under the same relative term. There, the scientists haven't come up with a single definition yet that everybody is using, but really it's how hard you can go for 60 minutes. It's not just power though, it's heart rate, speed, watts, whatever it is, it's what your output is for 60 minutes. But the other element to aerobic, of course, is VO2 max. And it's often used in the lab, but it's not a good predictor of athletic success. I do kind of work under the assumption sometimes that your FTP or your aerobic threshold is around 85% of your VO2 max or your five minute power. So you can kind of get an understanding of what to train and when, whether you're actually having to raise the floor or raise the ceiling. Your endurance sessions themselves, the workouts are going to be anything from five-minute intervals to 10-minute intervals, 20-minute intervals. Anything up to an hour at below threshold is actually going to build your aerobic up. You do want to do the longer rides as well at zone two and really minimum of two hours at zone two is going to get the effect that you need but you can stretch that out for as long as possible as long as you're not decoupling so your heart rate is separating from the power and you're not able to hold the 
actual training effort. But you can do other things in the season. So when the season starts to get going, you can do other things like progressive build-up. So over an hour, building up faster and faster. Or go the other way. Start off high and drop down slowly and see how long you can last at each zone before you actually have to stop and recover. And I find these challenges really good for the mental state of someone going into an event or a competition because they're able to see where they're at and they feel confident in their ability. Yes, it can turn around sometimes if it's not working, but you have to just choose the moments carefully. Number two is movement economy. It's our ability to move efficiently and with good biomechanics, and it's really a critical skill for all endurance athletes. And improving movement economy through better mobility and drills is a free form of speed. So in addition to the ability to move smoothly and efficiently, you really want to focus on skills and drills classics like spin-ups and high cadence workouts and single-legged repeats or whatever but there are more advanced ones whether you are moving into a season or you just want to step it up a notch because the other ones are driving you crazy so the more advanced ones are things like motor pacing or even just swapping off turns in a group can be very difficult when you're a beginner but once you can handle the pace in a group it just gives you more and more confidence So it's really hard to include these all year round. They're a bit of a sacrifice when you're doing them on their own because you're not getting much of a fitness benefit from doing single-legged pedaling. So that's where you need the more advanced ones as you get into the season so you can justify doing them when you're under a heavy load. And things like trying to keep a high cadence on your endurance rides is one way to help with the efficiency as is doing any type of sprint work because the sprint work itself is going to help you train the neuromuscular system to be able to handle that load at speed. And that moves us into number three, which is strength power. And many endurance athletes and coaches use strength only in the off-season. And I'm a big fan of strength in the off-season, but I'm also a fan of using it in the on-season. But like the suggestion from the article here is just you want to take it back a little bit. So while in the off season you may be doing three times of an hour at the most, if you want to bring it back a little bit in the season, you're talking about two times at 15 to 20 minutes because the emphasis changes on trying to build muscle strength and power into just maintaining what you have built as well as maintaining your core and all the other little areas that you need to focus on over time. The biggest challenge I find when you are in the season and you're not putting the focus on it is that it can just disappear. So just like flossing, it's really hard to see the benefit immediately and usually it's the first thing to go when time is short. So to combat this, you really need to put a focus in and understand that maybe only concentrating on one or two areas that are going to help you the greatest is the best place to start. Because it's not just doing planks and things that's going to help you a couple of times a week. It's actually, if you have to sit down, it's actually getting up and working out your hip flexors, your glutes, that whole socket area. Even your quads can get super tight and definitely your ITB. So working on one of those areas first and then moving on is going to be a way that you can just hone in and make it a ritual of five minutes a day so it becomes a process goal the fourth one is speed and to go fast it's really essential that you have some type of speed training throughout the year so this is kind of similar to having efficiency but efficiency is being able to ride further for less energy this is being able to go faster because you're able to produce the movement that supports this 
An interesting note in the article, it says that for Masters athletes, it is especially important since once speed is lost, it's much harder to regain. So this says to me that speed for Masters athletes should be something that's incorporated into a training program all year round. And it's not very hard to do. If you do have the efficiency drills, maybe you can switch them up for some speed drills. And the speed drills that I'm talking about are things on a trainer which it's quite unnatural so something outside for me is a little bit better but if you go outdoors then you can do cadence drills with more force so you can do sprinting downhills and I think that's a really good way to generate leg speed even short explosive sprints is a really good way to do it because you're starting at say 30 kilometers an hour and then you're trying to pick up the pace from there rather than trying to build on pure strength which is what you would need if you're doing a sprint from a standing start. Number five is mental fitness, and it's no surprise that it's here because it is such a big component of a training plan that's not actually written down on paper too often. And I've mentioned this many, many times, but I believe it is the gateway to your performance and it is a huge limiting factor. So what you're working on will depend on where you are in the season, but also if you're failing or succeeding, because either way, You have to control your mind and either harness what's happening if it's good or change what's happening if it's bad. And really the best way I know of identifying this is through introspection and that is through a race report. You will be so surprised by taking yourself out, writing it down on a bit of paper and then a few days later when the emotion has kind of drifted away, having a look at it a little bit more objectively and then kind of making a to-do list from that race report. It becomes really, really clear what happened around a specific incident or maybe trends over time. And number six, the final one is recovery regeneration. And this is where the magic happens, or at least the majority of the adaptions. And it's not about getting caught up in a product's hype when it comes to it's going to fix you and make you all faster after you train or compete. It's more about having a solid system that tells you firstly when you need to rest. And secondly, it's about knowing yourself and the best way to recover and how you get over hard efforts. Without getting too deep into recovery, I just want to bring up the biggest one. And the biggest one I see people failing with is sleep. And it's so easy to forget about that you need sleep because we've all had those moments where we finish a workout and we promise ourselves we're going to get to bed as soon as possible, but things just drag out and we don't actually get there when we say we will. It's also other things surrounding this. So you want to really prepare your sleep hygiene and your sleep hygiene is making sure that your room is dark, absolutely pitch black. You're not distracted by anything like an alarm clock or your phone and you don't have to go to the toilet during the night. So you don't have to get up and you have to plan for that by stopping drinking at a certain point, which enables you to get a sleep straight through. So there's other factors that go into this as well. So not looking at a screen and there is an app called the Flux app for Macs, which actually reduces the whiteness in the screen. So it's not having you simulated because sleep is so connected to light. The training program that the USA track team did before the last Olympics, when they would get up in the morning, they would not wear their glasses when they were out first thing in the morning because they were actually trying to indicate to their body through their eyes, not blunted by sunglasses, that they were actually awake and going and this is when the body's circadian rhythm should start to wake up and get going. 
I thought that was really interesting and it works the other way as well. So you want to just get rid of all those artificial sources of light so that your body can start shutting down and getting to that sleep state and that's where everything else then takes over. So there you have it, definitely back to basics, and I've mentioned a lot of these things before, but it's definitely a good reminder for you and a checklist to see if you're doing these things in your training program right now, understanding why or why not, and changing them if you feel that there is some adjustment that needs to be made. These definitely aren't the only elements to train though, but they are the elements that you can control and your coach should be aware of. So this is the communication between athlete and coach where you start to kind of work with each other and try and adjust these elements based on your feedback and input and then your coach's experience. Okay, now to the tech hacks and products section. Have you ever taken 15 minutes to line up your stem with your front wheel? Well, maybe once or twice, but I can't say that I've had such a big problem with it. Maybe there's a little bit of peace of mind when you are riding along and you don't have to look down and that one millimeter to the left is just really, really bugging you. But there's a new product from Tune to address this, the Tune Spur True. I don't know how if that's how you say it, but it's basically a laser pointer that goes on top of your stem that points down to make sure that your bars are aligned in the center of your bike. So the laser points down into the center of the tire to give you a visual indicator to make sure that it's lined up perfectly. It's around a hundred US bucks. Is this problem that important that you would buy it? I could only see it being beneficial for bike shops and people that are doing this all the time because it's a time saver but outside of that nah, I don't really think it's a huge problem to solve but I'll put the link in the show notes so you can check it out it is an interesting product and maybe just a little bit of overkill and now to that quote from the top of the show it of course is Mike Creed former pro and now podcast host and DS of Team Smart Stop Pro Cycling celebrating at the USA Pro National Champs after his team went 1-2 in the men's race. Eric Marcotte was a 35-year-old underdog going into the race and he was quoted as saying, I think I told Creed before that I may never get another chance to race this again and that final couple of kilometers I was never going to let it go any different. That's hunger for you. That is super cool. One reason I love racing bikes. Well done everyone including Creed and Marcotte and the team and by the way if you haven't listened to Creed's podcast get on it because he has the magic touch in opening up the interviewees and getting a lot out of them that you don't get anywhere else. It must be him or it might be the scotch that is it for this week you have been listening to the semi-pro performance podcast remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash success to find any links used in this week's episode from there you can sign up for your free wheelhouse masterclass building the base a step-by-step system for achieving your cycling goals but till next week get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into (laughs) 